Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see you on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in the city of Portland. This is a beautiful spring day, right? But we all know that we're not out of the rain yet, right? The rain, rain is likely going to return, but we appreciate glimpses of summer and what is to come. So I've been tricked myself already. We had a cookout a few weeks ago, had a fire pit or planned a fire pit, and then it started raining right before we did it at my house. Because like, oh, the weather is great, but it is beautiful today. And so thank you all for deciding to come and sit inside for about 90 minutes and uh, worship with us as a church. As a church, we have much to be thankful for. Last weekend was, was Easter, and even in the city of Portland, churches are a little bit larger on Easter Sunday. And so we had a team in town from our sending church, which naturally kind of boosted our numbers. But aside from that, uh, between the whole evening, the cookout, and our gathering, we actually had more first-time guests than we've ever had before. So I believe that's something to, worth celebrating. Um, hopefully, we can do follow-up with those people, and, and the idea is that they would maybe return um, and interact with us at some point as well. Um, now, most of you guys know that as a church, and me as a, as a leader, we don't put a lot of stock into a 90-minute gathering on Sundays. Now, we do believe that gathering is important because if you study the early church and the New Testament, the New Testament church gathered. And so it says, and they gathered. So we do believe that it's important. That's why we're doing it. That's why we come in and set up and I prepare a sermon and we make coffee and do all of these things. But we know that in our city specifically, studies show us that to really interact with these people, it's going to be outside the walls and outside of what it is that we're doing tonight. And so we really see tonight, uh, Sunday nights, as a way to connect further with those that we're interacting with throughout the week. And so hopefully you are interacting with people, um, people who will come to your house for dinner or maybe go meet you for coffee, but they won't attend your church service. And so um, we, we do enjoy gathering and hopefully it can be that place of connection for people to take a next step towards Jesus. As a church, we're in the middle of a series in the book of Ephesians called United in Christ. And although we took a break last week because of Easter, I'm excited to jump back in this week. Um, just to kind of refresh you, two weeks ago we left off with Paul telling us to live the new life that is ours to live in Christ Jesus. And so all these things leading up to Ephesians 4 had been declared over us, that we were chosen, we had been adopted, and all of these things. And so then in chapter 4 he said, really live into these things. This is yours to live in Jesus. Nothing that you have done but because of Jesus working in and through you. And so the main idea that we saw was that believers, those in Christ, who call themselves Christ followers, are called to live out their new identity in Christ with a lifestyle that is different from their pre-Christian past. So if you consider yourself a Christian in this room, I don't know if everybody does or not, but think about your life before you came to Christ and before you said, I am a Christian, and what that life looked like. And hopefully your life looks different now as a result of Jesus working in your life. And the idea is that God has made us new and that we're to live an altogether different life. We are to now image God. So when you think about image, I think about when I stand in front of the mirror, what you see, right? And sometimes we stand in front of the mirror and we don't like what we see. If I'll be honest, like there's times I'm just, I don't, I don't, like, I don't like the gap in my teeth, if I can be honest with you. And I see that, that my whole life, ever since my baby teeth, you know, my, my whatever permanent teeth, whatever those called, and they grew in. So I don't like that. Like I've been called Bugs Bunny and all these things. As I get older, I've embraced it a little bit more, right? And so I don't like what I see. But when you, when you think about your life before Christ and what you saw, what that reflection was, hopefully 
after you've come to Christ, the, the image that you're seeing back is the image of Jesus himself. And so Paul is waking up, up to this reality. He's saying, this is who you are now that you are in Christ. And, and it kind of seemed the last chapter, it seemed like Paul gives this list of do's and don'ts, and it almost looked like he was pointing to the law. But that's not what he was doing. He was presenting us with an opportunity to live out of the reality of what Christ has done for us and has been declared for us up to this point. So what, that's what we're going to pick back up tonight. We're going to be in Ephesians 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there or, or open the app on your phone and, and, and swipe until you get to Ephesians Ephesians 5. If you don't have a Bible and you don't have an app, I have blue Bibles on the back table there. Feel free to grab one of those. And I believe the words will be behind me if you can see around my head. We'll jump in. Verse 1. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We're going to pause there for a minute. So Paul, going back to Ephesians 4, which I know many of you weren't with us for that part, but he's not communicating a message filled with law based on a list of things to do and not to do, but he's communicating a, a message filled with grace and imitation. And so he's saying, imitate what has already been given to you in Jesus. And so the thing is that the work of Jesus is already done, right? That's what we celebrated last weekend in Easter. And say, he's saying, walk in this work that has already been done on your behalf. I think sometimes we trick ourselves and we get into this mindset and thinking, okay, now I'm a Christ follower, but now I have to do all this, this work. It's like, no, Christ has declared it's already been done. And now you get to walk in this reality. You get to rest in this reality. And so tonight's sermon is called, um, imitate Jesus. Right? That's, that's what we're going towards here. That's what Paul is pointing us towards. And when you think about imitating Jesus, I think that we look back to the beginning of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so we see that we, we were predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters, and this happened through the blood of Jesus. This is the opposite of being slaves. We're not trying to earn a wage, right? If you're a slave, you think, man, I've got I've to earn this. I've got to earn to get paid here, saying, no, you have been adopted. And when you're adopted, so it doesn't matter if your child is a biological child of yours or not, once you're adopted, they, they should have every single right that your, your biological children have. I, I told those of you who've been here that I've got a friend who has, I think he's seven or eight kids now. I can't even keep up with how many kids he has. But about half of them have been adopted, and the other half haven't. And he specifically adopts kids from countries where they've been neglected. So he's got a 12-year-old who he still pushes around in a, a stroller because a 12-year-old was in a crib for it, it, her whole life. And he loves those children, but he loves them just as much as he loves his own biological children. And as soon as he adopted them, they became his. They had every single right that his other kids who don't have any of those, those health issues um, have. And so to me, it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us as he's called us to himself. And so we are beloved children, and we are already loved. And those of you who have children in here, I've got three children in here, and so they are already loved. Now, do they make mistakes? Yes. And do they do things that frustrate me? Yes. And I always think, man, that's a reflection of what God is to me, because God still loves me in spite of that. But I know God's got to be going, man, what are, you, what are you thinking? What are you doing? You need to just walk in this reality that's already been given to you. Imitating Jesus is what I call gospel change, and gospel change is exactly the opposite of moralism. So we have to be careful with these passages, because I think they can easily be interpreted as moralism here. And what, uh, that's what other religions teach us, right? They teach us that your behavior needs to change, and by behave, changing your behavior, well, then, then you're good, and then maybe you're good enough to be accepted by whatever, whatever their God is. And Jesus has flipped that whole idea upside down and says, no, you will never be good enough. You'll never do enough good things, but what I have done for you on your behalf, and because of that, you are declared as righteous. Because of that, you're made alive. And so now he's saying, act alive. Right? And so Paul's kind of, I feel like he's almost like grabbing the Ephesians, kind of shaking them a little bit, saying, you are alive. You are beloved. You are sons of the almighty God. 
Act like it. Think about this. A fruit tree doesn't need to be commanded to bear fruit. It does so naturally. Okay, so if you plant a, you know, plant a fruit tree, and as long as you cultivate it the right way and do all the soil and stuff right, it, it, just, it bears it, right? No one's like, hey, you need to, apples need to grow on you. The apples just grow. And so in the same way, as new creations in Christ, we are to naturally imitate our Savior Jesus. This should just be a natural overflow. You know, does it happen overnight? No, but as this process that we call sanctification, that really big word, we're being made more and more like Jesus. Verse 2, he continues and says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The supreme act of God's love, which is what we looked at last week, well, we looked at this whole idea of this is love, we looked at John 3.16, was when he gave himself up for us. Love is defined by the example of Christ, the self-sacrificial, self-sacrificing to God on behalf of sinners. Sinners includes every single person who's ever been born. So all of us in this room, uh, we are sinners. And through his death, Jesus shows us what love is all about, that he came to love us and to restore the brokenness that's in all of our lives. Jesus, who wore our identity on the cross. Think about it. We all deserved a punishment, and Jesus took that punishment on. He wore that identity. So it's like, imagine your identity of your sin and your brokenness and all your filth. Imagine that's like a big pea coat, like a big heavy jacket. And you just hand that to Jesus, and Jesus took all of that from you. And then, ever since then, we've gotten to wear his jacket. And so, Jesus, pure holiness, we, get to, we got to exchange that. And ever since then, God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he looks at you as he sees Jesus. That alone should call us to stand in awe of God and go, how is that possible? Because, if, I mean, we all know deep down when we're alone, right, that we have thoughts that aren't always good thoughts, and we do things that aren't always good things. Like, how is it that God, the God of the universe, who created this whole world, who created you, who created me, that he looks at us as Jesus? Tim Keller says, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of a life which has experienced the grace of God. And so really think about once your life has been changed in Christ, it should be marked by these things because of what God has done for you. It shouldn't be, uh, maybe, maybe I'm helping Pastor Rob over here, it shouldn't be one of these where he has to convince you to do these things of, of service and generosity and loving the community that he's placed you in. It should be an overflow. Like, man, I get to do these things, and this is incredible that God has allowed me to do this here. Now, the remaining verses in this section that we're going to look at tonight are, are not the easiest or the most fun verses to look at, so you're welcome for uh, showing up on, on, on this night. But we are a church that believes the Bible, and we are a church that believes we should get our instruction from the Bible. So instead of avoiding difficult or challenging topics or portions of Scripture, we believe that we should, we should go through those just as we go through any other area of Scripture. So some churches would skip right over it. Trust me, this is one of those that would be easy just to skip right over, and maybe no one will notice, we'll move on. But instead, we believe that we should actually talk about things the Bible talks about and deal with things that we actually deal with in life. So I think it is a very relevant sermon for us. And think of the remaining verses tonight as a type of conversation that you never look forward to having. Maybe you've had one of those this week. Maybe you've had one of those recently. But you know that that conversation is necessary. You're kind of just, man, I'm just avoiding it. Like, I don't really want to interact with that. Think for a moment when your mom and dad, or maybe it was your uncle or an older sibling or somebody who set you down to have the talk. You guys know what I mean by the talk, the birds and the bees, right? So think about it. Think in that moment. Maybe you never had that talk at all, so maybe that's even more awkward. You're the person who got in college. You're like, what are you guys talking about? I'm not, I'm not sure what this is. But my guess is for most of you, that, that talk was very uncomfortable, that you probably kind of looked down, didn't make any eye contact with the person that was telling you these things, and you were just praying and hoping 
that this conversation would end. And of course, you didn't ask any questions. You know, you get to the end, they're like, do you have any questions? You're like, no, <laughs> I, I think I'm good. I, I understand it all. And you're just like, okay, can I, can I go do something else? And please don't ever bring that topic up again. That's the kind of conversation that Paul's going to have with the Ephesians and with us tonight. And so I, I will say this, though. It can be awkward to have these conversations, but I, I believe that we need the talk, and I believe that we as a group need this talk. None of us look forward to these conversations because we think we know what's best for me. Like, we think we know, okay, I'm, I'm going to live my life this way, and I'm going to do these things. I'm going to eat what I want, and you can have it your way. I don't even remember which restaurant said that, but you can eat what you want. You can have it your way, get it all piled up. You can watch what you want. You can, you, know, you, can, you can enjoy the activities of leisure that you want to enjoy, right? If I want to go to brunch on Sunday morning, I'm going to go to brunch on Sunday morning. Or if I want to go hiking on Sunday afternoon or ride my motor, like we believe that we have the choice and freedom to do all of these things. But tonight, I believe that God will speak to us and he's going to give us the talk when it comes to matters of how we live our lives after we've come to Christ and that it should be marked as different than those who don't know Jesus. So broadly, we're going to see two categories tonight. First, we're going to see what we walk away from. So he's going to talk about these things. So you're going to walk away from this in your former life. And the second, we're going to see what we walk into as a result of Christ. So, so think of this set of verses as kind of like family rules or, or guidelines. Right? Every family has their guidelines. Every family has their rules. We don't always like them, but think about it like guardrails on the highway. So if you ever get on I-5 or 205 or whatever other highway you're on, you see those guardrails. Now, the guardrails are not there to tell you not to drive. They're not saying, don't drive your car, although in Portland we kind of argue that. Don't drive your car. We're, just gonna build, we're not going to build bigger highways so that you don't drive your car. But the guardrails are there to, to keep you safe. They're kind of to give you some guidelines to help you remain safe so you don't go flying off the highway as you're looking at the natural beauty that we have around us. So in the same way, these guidelines tonight are meant to protect us as we enjoy the things that God has created and given to us. Now, some of the words this evening that we will discuss are PG-13. And I don't, I don't throw them out there to be crass. This is, this is what they come from the Bible. Now, occasionally I may you know, throw something out there that's not the Bible, so discern that. But those of you with kids, which is, looks like is me in the room tonight, <laughs> this, is the, this is the time when, hey, honey, that you may want to slip out because of the things that I will mention. And so I'll give you guys a second to slip out of the room, and then we will uh, we'll pick back up. So, so we're going to pick back up in verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is, is proper among saints. And so to be clear here, the, the Greek term is porneia. It covers all forms of sexual sense. And so we tend to single out the ones that we don't deal with. We tend to single out those things where you're like, that's definitely wrong, and they shouldn't do that, and they shouldn't look at this, and they, sh they shouldn't touch this or do that, whatever. So we, we kind of single out those and say, those are the bad ones, and those are the ones that are sinful. But this is all-encompassing of any form of sexual sin. And here's the reality. We all have forms of brokenness, and I believe we all have forms of brokenness when it comes to sexual things as well. And so I say, be careful to judge others prior to dealing with your own form and your own area of sin. In Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, it says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But say, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Now, I don't see any one-eyed people or one-handed people out here uh, this evening, but those, those are pretty harsh words, like pretty high, pretty high standards, right? But I look at that, and I, and I look back at that verse in Matthew to say, the sin issues that we deal with today, the sin issues that our culture deals with today, they're not new or unique. It's easy to say, oh, that was in the Bible. That was, that was a long time ago. They don't deal with the same things that we did. They didn't live in the city of Portland. Have you guys ever studied Ephesus? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have more strip clubs per capita than anywhere else in the country. They didn't have all of these whatever stores you know, um, that you go to. You know, they didn't have all the, the movie shops that you can go to in our city. <laughs> and so you look at these sin issues, and they're not new. They're not unique. We've always had them. And the reason that we should, it says that we should strive to live lives of pervasive holiness, that we should live lives that are marked not by those things, by the opposite of those things. And so pornea is ultimately idolatry. This is one reason that I believe when we look at these types of things and areas of brokenness, I think we actually usually ask the wrong questions and we usually focus on the wrong things. And that's why I think we end up singling people out and, and struggles out and issues out. And so I do want you to hear me because I, as I don't know you guys, I don't, I don't know many of you on, on this side of the room anyway, that, that I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't know anything about you. So maybe it's possible you're, you're dealing with something tonight. And I, I don't want to be sensitive to that. And I want to be sensitive that you could be struggling with something. And there's a place for that within the church. And I think that's kind of what Paul is showing us here. We live in a society and culture that encourages sexual expression in multiple forms, especially in our city. It's, it's, it's only celebrated. Pornography is now more accessible than it has ever been as anyone that owns a smartphone. If you own a smartphone or a tablet, right, you've got porn accessible in your palm of your hand every single day. Visits to Pornhub, I was doing some research on a website for this sermon, and Visits to Pornhub, which is a, just one website amongst who knows how many pornography websites out there, it says uh, visits totaled at $33.5 billion over the course of 2018, an increase of 5 billion visits from 2017. That equates to daily average of 92 million visitors, and at the time of this writing, Pornhub's daily visits had exceeded 100 million. 30.3 billion searches, or 962 searches per second. Every minute, 63,992 new visitors arrive at Pornhub. 12 new videos and two hours of content are uploaded to Pornhub every minute. In 2018, saw Pornhub's average visit duration grow by 14 seconds to 10 minutes and 13 seconds. The United States is the top consumer of both illegal child pornography and obscene pornography. The online porn industry makes about $3,000 per second. And I could continue on and on. I mean, the list, there's just so much out there and so much research out there. I just kind of narrowed down and grabbed a few things. And that's not just to pick on one area, although I do believe that that is one of the areas across our nation, probably across the world, that is just, um, it's just causing us to get further and further away from the things of God and opening more and more doors and more and more cans and what it does to us psychologically. And there's, you know, my, my point of my sermon isn't to focus on that necessarily, but I think just to bring it kind of home. Um, I've got three little boys, as you just saw. Yeah. As I read these studies and looking at how early they will be exposed. Um, I, in fact, I was, I was probably my oldest son's age, around eight years old, when a neighbor exposed me to pornography for the very first time. So this stuff is you know, very relevant to me and on my radar and, and very sensitive to that. So I believe Paul's words to us are timely and timeless. But at the same time, I do want to make sure that I say, I believe that we, the church, should be the ones known for restoring those who have fallen into any form of sexual sin. 
right? We tend to single out and sometimes cut off. And then there may be a time and a place that needs to happen, but I also believe that we should be the ones that are saying, no, we want to restore people. You know, there's a reason these things are often called secret sins and that, that they stay in secret. And part of that is that the church hasn't done a good job of restoring people. And so I believe that the church and hopefully sojourn as we would we grow, will be known as a church that restores people back from any form of that, that, that it wouldn't just be that we neglect them and turn our backs on them. But because of passages like this one, many people think that the Bible is anti-sex. Have you ever heard had somebody say, like, why is the Bible against sex? Well, I would say that's not possible because God created sex. So it's not possible that the Bible be anti-sex. He created it as a gift within the confines of a marriage. And so I'd say a more accurate statement is that the Bible is pro-intimacy. So God created sex, and he created male and females so that our bodies are fashioned to unite in an intimacy of sex with one another. Right? And I'm not trying to be gross here, but I'm trying to give us the biblical picture here. And so I cannot think of a more accurate display and expression of intimacy and unitedness than a husband and a wife in a covenantal relationship of marriage coming together. So that's why when non-married people, I have a feeling we have a number of those in here tonight, especially non-married people are sleeping together, my encouragement to them, not popular opinion by the way, is to commit yourself to one another, to, to enter into that covenant relationship. Think of it this way. Fire is a good thing. Now, when I have fire in my fireplace, it warms my home. It creates a nice ambiance. I get to sit by and drink my coffee or my hot chocolate. But fire in the kitchen is a really bad thing because fire in the kitchen means my house might get destroyed. I'm going to have to do an insurance claim. I might have to move out somewhere else. And so sex is similar. It's a beautiful display of love and intimacy when done within a covenant marriage as created. But it can be like a fire in the kitchen when done outside of the marriage covenant. It can destroy you, and it can destroy your life. Paul also mentions, kind of within this same verse, covetousness, which is basically a jealousy of longing for what others possess to the point of idolatry. And so you're basically saying, what I have is not enough. Now, he links it in with this, this sexual immorality for a reason. So maybe, maybe you found yourself before saying something to the extent of, if only my wife looked like that. Or maybe you've, you've thought before, if only my husband understood me like he does. Or maybe, if only my wife would do this. These thoughts, these thoughts come out. And so Paul says, these things must not be named among Christians because we have been chosen. Remember, we've been set apart, that first chapter of Ephesians, we've been chosen, set apart to be holy. And these things, this type of behavior, is not proper among the saints, which he calls it. He said, these things are not holy. And so you must be marked in, in, by something that's different than this. He continues and kind of transitions a little bit. He says in verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so our speech and our language should also be different once we are in Christ. It should now overflow with thanksgiving as opposed to being jealous of what others have, their possessions. And we shouldn't put our concentration on, on getting what, what it is that they have. So this whole series that we've been doing, we've been calling it United in Christ. And, and so we think about what Christ is giving us and, and the body should, we should be building it up. So our language should be words that are building up. We shouldn't be cutting others down or breaking them down and we shouldn't also be jealous of things they have. And so crude joking should no longer define us. What, what we used to refer to as locker room talk. Nonsensical talk should no longer be what defines us. And so when he says crude joking, he's, he's not talking about just making a joke. Like we all like to laugh. We all enjoy having jokes. 
I could, I could throw out a bunch of them up here. You may find half of them funny, the other half aren't funny at all. So he's not saying don't joke. He's not saying don't have a good time. I know it kind of seems like, man, this is like a tense moment here. It's really serious. But he's saying that we shouldn't joke about sexual immorality. Like that should definitely be something that we, that we don't joke about. In other words, guys in here, we, should, we shouldn't ever make jokes that objectify women. Or we shouldn't talk about sex with a woman who's not our wife. Okay? Those are just really good life principles and, and, and really kind of biblical principles as well. Paul's like, yeah, don't do that. Just avoid that one altogether. Or girls, we shouldn't read and discuss trashy romance novels or TV shows or movies like he's just not that into you. Right? There's, there's these things that, that we should also avoid. I think we kind of we focus on the guys a lot of times, but the women have things in areas as well. Our language and our behavior should not be like that of the people who are enslaved to a sensual lust or saturated by our self-desires. We live in a culture of all cities where it's so easy to embrace the opposite of what Paul is telling us. It's celebrated. We could go out here this evening. We could go to, I mean, there's as many strip clubs as there are coffee shops. So in the morning, during the first half of the day, I always tell people to throw a rock, you're going to hit a coffee shop. You know, during the, the evening hours, it's like throw a rock, you're going to hit a strip club. But instead, we should be people who are marked by different lives. We should be imitators of Jesus and the way that we see Jesus living. It continues in verse 5 and 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul's kind of mentioned three main sins here. Sexually immoral, the impure, and the covetous as those that are excluded from the kingdom of God. Now, don't mishear me. He's not saying that those that, that commit those sins, that they will not inherit the, the kingdom of God. But he's saying someone's life that is marked by those things and who's unrepentant of those things, rather than seeing the fruit of the Spirit, which is a work of God in itself, that those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, as believers, you have been bought and you've been brought into a redemptive kingdom, in the kingdom of Jesus. And that that will be fully consummated at the second coming of Christ, what we're waiting on now. And so for Paul, the kingdom of God in its fullness is the eternal realm that believers will finally and fully enter through the resurrection of immortality. But also it's experienced in some measure now in this age through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is why we are given the Holy Spirit, right? So we allow the Spirit, and we, we say the Spirit needs to guide our steps, because the Spirit is not going to guide you into these things. So if you think about these things, and, and if you are struggling with these things, or maybe you have struggled with these things, that is when you are out of the step with the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God would never lead you into something that's contradictory to His Word. And the common deception throughout church history has been the notion that a professing Christian can lead an unrepentant, sinful life after their conversion to Christ and not suffer any consequences. But what, what Paul is telling us, is saying that is not true. Paul's saying that these practices lead to the wrath of God's judgment. So it's not true that you can just, just go on living however you want to live. And once again, it's a work of the Spirit. So don't mishear me. I'm not saying pull up your bootstraps or roll up your sleeves and just try harder. If, if your life is not reflecting that, then there may be something else going on in your life. Because if the Spirit of God's not working in you and causing your behavior to change and you're not seeing through the Spirit, then there's something else that's happening there. And if you're one who thinks you can live however you want because of some prayer that you prayed when you were four years old, then you have totally misunderstood our faith and what it means to embrace the grace of Christ. I know I so many people I grew up with who would point back to something that, man, I was four years old. And my wife gave her life to Christ when she was four, and I, you know, she's followed in, through and grown in that and continued that. But people go, yeah, well, I did that, and so I can live however I want now. And I'm like, wait a minute, I think you totally misunderstood what the message was telling us there. I'm not actually sure that you're interpreting that the right way. 
And the wrath of God refers to those that are unrepentant, yet they may be found within the covenant Christian community. And so we are told that no unrepentant sinner will inherit eternal life. So my prayer is, as sojourn grows, that, that, that we will see the need for repentance and we will repent before it's too late. That those things that, that we want to keep in secret, we can actually expose those to the light, which we're going to look at here in, in just a couple of moments, and that we'll be known for helping restore people back. Because I don't want that to be said of anyone who, who comes under my, uh, my care, my, my shepherding. And up to this point in this passage, Paul has focused much of his intention on, on what it is that new creations in Christ are to walk away from. So he's saying, walk away from these things. No longer be defined by these things. And you've got to remember the context they're in. They're in Ephesus. And this city, that's what they're marked by. That's what they're known for. But I don't think the city we're in today is that far off. And so he's namely saying the sins of idolatry, sexually impure and immoral. But now he's going to transition. We're going to start in verse 7. He's going to transition to focusing on what it is that we should walk into. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul is encouraging us to walk into something else other than those things previously mentioned. And that something is the light. He's saying walk in the light. Think about all those things that I've named up in these, or that Paul's named in these verses. Those are things you typically want to do in the dark. Those are things that typically happen at dark. There's a reason strip clubs don't open until a certain time. Now, I don't know what time that is. I know you're all thinking, does he know what time they open? But I, I do know, and I pass by the sign, the Leon sign's not lit up in the middle of the day. So the reason that they open after a certain time Right, Because they want those things to happen when it's, when it's dark. Right? Nobody wants to be seen walking into a place like that. Think about this. How many of you get dressed in the morning and sometimes it's still dark when, when you're putting your clothes on? Like Maybe you have to get up really early for work or in, in the winter time here it's still really dark in the morning. And so I know that's a f- frequent occurrence even at my house where, where you wake up and it's easy to maybe throw on something that doesn't match. I know in our city we say we don't care about that, but maybe you throw on something that doesn't match, or maybe you show up somewhere and you're like, wait a minute, I've got one brown shoe on, and now I've got a black shoe on, and they're not even the same style of shoe. <laughs> they, they don't even match. And so those things can happen to us. In the darkness, we make certain decisions that seem right. You know, I think most of the time when we make these decisions, we're just obviously we're not thinking, we're not walking in line with the Spirit, but we make these decisions thinking, well, this, this seems right, it feels right, because we do so much based on our feelings, this feels right to me. But when it's exposed to the light, we can see them truly and recognize them for what they really are. Paul's exhorting them to become what they already are in Christ, and their lifestyle must conform to their new identity. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he said, when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon is the picture of the believers, the church. The church shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. And so, but our text even goes further than that to say that we actually become light. We ourselves, Christ followers, become light as well. And the fruit of that light is the fruit of the Spirit. And that is what should be the overflow coming out of your life. And so the Bible gives us general principles for life, but followers of Christ must use wisdom to discern how to apply those principles to the concrete issues of our lives. And so Paul's going to now offer a concrete example of how it is that we walk as children of light. It's easy for me to tell you, don't do this, walk in, walk in light, and then to pack up and go home. But Paul's actually going to go a little bit further and going to tell us how it is that we walk as children of light by telling us in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
So as Christians, as those who follow and love Jesus, we are agents of light, and we as agents of light should take no part in the works of darkness or that which displeases the Lord. The light exposes that which is in the dark, and it makes it visible. J.D. Greer, a former pastor of mine, he, he talks about the word expose here. He said, expose means to live in a way that begs a question. Expose in everything you do. Put him on display in your generosity, in our love, in our holy living, in our worship. The old phrase goes, you are the only Jesus some will ever see and the only Bible that some will ever read. And I, I believe that's truer in our city than most places, going back to what I said earlier. You know, I don't know of any church, especially a church plant, who's, who's just overflowing at the seams because they say, hey, we're going to start a church in this neighborhood. That should be obvious to you guys tonight. And so I think about this and that, that last part of you're the only Jesus that some will ever see and the only Bible some will ever read. That, that is so true. It's the neighbors that we interact with. So think about your neighbors and your coworkers and where it is that God has strategically placed you in this city for that to be true. And so that's the question for us. What kind of reflection are you giving about the nature and beauty of God? This passage would warn us that when you and I joke about sin, when we are stingy with our money, when we do sloppy work, when we are short-tempered, when we worship all lazy, we obscure others' vision of God. Because if the only vision and, and reality of Jesus they know is you, what is it that they see? What is it that they experience? And so there's some reasons in a city like ours you may not come out and say you're a Christ follower right away, that you're a Christian, but this might be another reason. Because then once they know... Now you're like, oh, no, I just, I just did that. And it's not saying live a perfect life. You know, when you make a mistake, it's an opportunity to say, yeah, I make mistakes too. And you can show them what that restoration process looks like. So that's not what that's saying here. But we should be living our lives with intentionality. We should be imitating Jesus as we walk around and then we live the life here that God has given us. So church, we are the ultimate apologetic for the gospel in a skeptical world. We have to show people the difference of the glorious that Jesus makes in our lives. Look for somewhere to do that this week. If you don't do that, if you don't live with that intentionality, and I don't know, maybe you all do, but maybe some of you don't, think about that this week. I want to live with the intentionality. I want to show others Jesus and what it means to actually live out this reality that Paul is showing us. Finally, Paul says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So our behavior, once we are in Christ, should be marked as wise, as we no longer get caught up in the foolish things of the world that previously distracted us. But we should take advantage of every opportunity that comes our way. Psalm 90, verse 12, teaches us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We live in a day where wisdom is needed, and, and as a pathway to holiness, we are given Christ Jesus. We are given, all of us collectively are given an opportunity to make the best use of time, meaning that our remaining time on this earth. It's easy for us to look at our past mistakes. Maybe this is from years ago. Maybe this is from last week. Maybe that's from this morning. You maybe have a mistake, and you're, you're just, it's easy to look at those things and to dwell on those things, and, man, I messed up again. I, just, I don't know if God can use me. But once we know Jesus, and if you do know Jesus, you may have messed up, but we are given new morning mercies every single day with a chance to redeem the time for good. You can say, you know what? I messed up. And God, I recognize that I messed up, but I'm going to, take, I'm going to walk forward now. I'm going to walk in your spirit. And then maybe someone else is dealing with that exact same thing, and God gives you an opportunity to say, you know what? It's going to be okay. Because God has welcomed us with open arms and said, come as you are. And although the will of God is not always made clear for us, as you study the word of God, he'll give you discernment needed for his will. 
And so we're going to close the day by asking this question. Ask this to yourself. Do I demonstrate the glory of Jesus to the world in these areas? Not the areas I'm pointing out, but the areas that Paul is pointing out to us. Now, if we had to go around and, and, and do a survey, my guess is that none of us do this perfectly. My guess is many of us do some of these areas poorly. I don't know if we, none of us would check that. We'd probably all check average. There was like a, an excellent, good, bad, you know, like average. But the reality is we probably do many of these areas poorly. But God has provided the means to come before him by saying, God, I believe that you are God. So this should be the posture of our heart. God, I believe that you are God, which means you are permanent and only those who live for you will last. And I also realize that you are good and you're the source of all goodness and only those who fill themselves with you will be satisfied. You may not feel either of those things now, but that you should choose to believe in them and arrange your life around them because of what God has done and declared in Jesus that it is finished. So here's what we're going to do. This is typically what Sojourn does as a way of response for those visitors. As we move into a time of reflection and celebration through the taking of the elements of communion. And so this is a reminder for us each week as we break off the piece of bread that Jesus' body was broken for us. And as you dip it into the wine, that Jesus' blood was shed for us. Now, before rising out of your chair to take the elements of communion, I want you to pray and ask God to do an inspection on your heart. And ask him to help you apply the gospel to any area where you are struggling. Now, it may be the areas that Paul pointed out tonight and maybe some other area altogether. But just cry out to God. If it's one of those, just say, God, you know my heart already. It's not hidden from you as much as I think I can hide it. And I'm struggling in this area. Please help me to apply the truth of your love and your grace to that area of my life. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll respond through communion. And then I'll have uh, Philip and the worship band come back up and close us out through a couple more songs. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you.